0: One, two, three, four. Jonah Beaucaire is an international choreographer and media artist known for his groundbreaking cross-disciplinary collaborations. He is co-founder of the Center for Performance Research and founder of the Jonah Beaucaire Arts Foundation. Beaucaire's dances and films have been presented at the Guggenheim, MoMA PS1, the New Museum, the Whitney, and many other venues across 34 countries. He has received dozens of awards and grants including a 2015 John Simon Guggenheim Memorial Foundation Fellowship, two New York Dance and Performance Bessie Awards, and a Rockefeller New York City Cultural Innovation Award.
1: Jonah Boquer, welcome to The Creative Process.
2: Happy Tuesday. I feel welcome. (laughs) Thank you. For inviting me to the creative process.
1: Thank you. Well, the creative process has been at the forefront of your mind, I guess, all your life. That's actually what i wondering what brought you to uh, the world of dance when you started to begin to, and dance is not uh, a visual artistic practice for you as well, but when did you get the inkling that this is where you would make your life?
2: Thanks, Mia. I, I think that dance, I, I would like to say that dance is always universally practiced and universally shared and very often to to taper down it is communally practiced and communally shared for example dance classes or concert dance or dancing in the street or dancing in tribes or folkloric dance or dance companies is you have groups and that that struck me pretty early on. I would maybe pinpoint age six, where from a very big family, I felt as though I was a part of a big group. <laughs> so, so I would like to anchor us in that notion that dance is always somehow communally practiced and communally shared. And if that would be a starting point, then it quickly becomes public, which is a joy. And then it quickly becomes communal. And so I, I kind of, I, I think about that in a very generous way with the field of dance as we as we evolve on these traditions.
1: And so it was from a very young age that it started for you. Uh, what kind of movements were you fascinated in? I mean, I know some people find inspiration from nature or animals or just the fascination with the choreography of life.
2: I think that the uh, the creative process and, and Mia and Hannah, you're so prepared. And I, I wanted to join you really at the highest levels of talking about a creative process. So I am in my space of, creative work today, which is in year 19 as a space. And so you're going to hear creative work <laughs> from me and, and from colleagues who are dear to me and who have survived a pandemic. So I want that to be the backdrop for creative conversation and also for sound and how we thrive around that. But uh, to respond to your question in a direct way, I was born to immigrant parents. and um, They're amazing and and they're still alive. And so I feel thankful, but they had a lot of kids. (laughs) They They had six kids. And actually I would feel comfortable saying five of us are artists. And the sixth one, the sixth one is a very gifted organic farmer and university professional. So we as first generation kids, the six kids, we're all pretty creative. and we're we're really friendly. So let's call that a tribe, you know, and that tribe was um, filial and humorous and full of love and always convivial and always healthy. And so I, I feel lucky. I would like to put health into the beginning of the conversation. But this big tribe I think that really marked me. And everybody was moving around all the time in this immigrant first-generation family. So with such motion, I found myself quickly in motion. Um, And I returned Mia to like age six and saying, you know, how I was moving. So shortly thereafter, I would start to stage my siblings in the backyard. So we could almost, I could almost like, kick that back to you what was this six-year-old doing staging big groups in the backyard
0: that's so interesting Um, I'm curious because I know that your whole career has been marked by bringing dancers together in community from being in Cunningham's company early on to founding your own space that has made a home for artists for as you say 19 years Um, how has your emphasis on community been changed in the past year where suddenly community is virtual and choreography can't be you know in contact with other people
2: hannah i love seeing you and i love speaking with you but community um i'd like i want to answer your question but i also would like to bring us back to an epistemology like a kind of a creative root word that goes to, you know, in, in preparing today and in thinking about this amazing context that we're all in, the creative process. I bring us to chorios, you know, logos, corios, and these two root words. So as we go, that the epistemology in English that we're recording in, the languages that I grew up hearing, were um, English. And then I went to school vaguely in English and Spanish. But I heard French, you know, as a baby and through my adult life and career. And Mia, I would like to salute you in Paris and make the world a smaller, more connected place. So Paris looms uh, vastly in, in how I'm able to thank you today um, as, an, as a creative person and Arabic and many Semitic languages that converge with Arabic and Hebrew or Ladino or vanishing dialects. So going in English, I want us to go with Koryos and Logos. So how logic and thought and thought-making logic, reason, work with Koryos or the idea of movement making and so the logic of movement making we could go in two directions from the beginning we could say that movement making and logic is a solo body and its movement and its endeavors and its labor and its its beauty and its poetry and its movement literally but then movement making and movement logic around more than one person, which takes us back to that community idea. So those are the those are the stems, is solo and group. And there are probably many, many, many other forms in a post-medium condition, but those two pathways, you know, lead us to lead me to talk about then another word, which is the community epistemology. And I I don't want to anchor it in any language, but the community function of dance or sort of the group and public function of dance are inseparable from my point of view from the medium itself. And as as we articulate that condition, community needs space. So could be public space, could be parks, could be um, outdoors, could be deserts, could be anywhere really, could be theaters, could be Agora, uh, to go back to Koryosh and Logos and the Greek epistemology of English. But you need space to have community and you need space to have dance. So I'm going to intensify you know, a kind of an anchor position in the conversation, which is that dance relies on space and dance relies on community. And choreographers often bridge the two. So choreographers often rely on space and rely on communities, but very often they make space and they make communities because they rely on both and then they create them both. So space and community, Function together. And I, I don't think I, I think I maybe knew that intuitively, <laughs> but now I'm able to talk about it with you uh, in a recorded manner and, and maybe reflect on it. So I think that space and community go together and they, they reinforce each other.
1: I think it's so interesting there's a few threads there that I can relate to and I think it's interesting one thing about you growing up in a large family and I didn't grow I in an indirect way I grew up as uh, the uh, daughter and um, granddaughter of people who grew up in large families so my father had uh, 13 children in his family and and my grandmother also came from a large family and then they were very vocal and in in that in those particular families it turned them all into writers uh, or speakers <laughs> because they're all battling for space and right. so it may be in your family you know dancers or d- different ways of finding space uh, and so it's fascinating how the constraint because this is another stimulus for creativity right constraints and tensions give rise to, you know, great art.
2: I love that comment because each member of a family or of a community would want to have their space or their place, you know, and their, that could be, you know, that could be emotional is that everyone has their place to speak and then to feel heard and to feel seen and witnessed. But it could become, and I mean, I don't want to say formal only, but I would, I would briefly say formal because position in space had historically been a role in choreography that has enjoyed enormous scholarship so far. And so formally, you know, the position in space has been a choreographic project, right? That we have enjoyed, that, that I'm not in a position to criticize, but then space has changed and our, our use of space and our language around space has changed. And one uh, architect that I'm working with, although I, I sort of set the stage today for, for Mia and Hannah and the creative process, this office, this creative space has worked with a lot of architects. So the choreography and architecture conversation is very deeply felt and very rich. And so language around space is changing. And so must choreography. Public space is also changing. And the notion of a parametric kind of six feet between people and be that uh, something to continue or something to vaccinate and counteract and then to intervene in or heal, space is constantly changing. And so choreographers have to be comfortable with space changing, um, I think in the in the familial sense, space is often negotiated on the emotional plane, where family members work with one another to kind of occupy space and to coexist, and it is not separate from maybe a dance company logic where members of a dance company sustain each other for periods of time. And then they also negotiate a kind of occupying of space um, physically and emotionally.
0: I'm so interested in the idea of a collaboration between choreography and architecture. Um, And I wanted to invite you to talk about Space 428 um, in Hudson, which I believe is a refurbished church that you've turned into a dance space. Um, I wanted to, I was curious about how you felt navigating um, the transformation of that space and its intentions.
2: As we dive in, um, creating space Uh, in the United States very quickly in my early mid-20s led to creating property. And I, I don't, I put that into this recorded space to say that creating property was creative and was a creative process in my hands. So the space that we're recording from would be maybe the first creative space or the first creative home, if you will. And what you're seeing exists between a kind of office and art collection and workspace and then there's another property which adjoins it which is a dance space and exists to give community and affordable space to young dancers and the mission of that is so that they have something like what I had you know when when I was in my 20s and wanting to dance and wanting to subsist <laughs> so that's the space that we're in is this sort of art studio, museum, atelier, administrative um, hub and learning environment. And then adjoining it is a dance studio, which right now is doing mainly solos and cleanings as the economy safely reopens in New York City. But kind of solos and cleanings, solos and cleanings, solos and cleanings. Solos and cleaning, <laughs> like that is the creative, the creative process of the space right now. So that dates to 2002, and the swell of interest in this creative space led me to co-found, along with another choreographer, um, a facility in Williamsburg, which paradoxically is closer to Manhattan, but also along the L train, and its use of affordable space Um, is very similar, and I feel as though I am its author, and that is called CPR. So CPR is a space that is much more technically developed, and it's a separate nonprofit entity. But that space is sustainable, and it is zoned as and developed as LEED-certified gold, which in the U.S., the LEED system is the um, Law of Environmentally Efficient Design, And so we feel very lucky to have subsisted with that. Now that dates to 2008 and it is its own creative space. Hannah brings us to space 428 in Hudson. And what I did being a little bit older (laughs) in the creative process was I said, wait a minute, The, the choreography, the making of choreography has led to some prize money. Um, and in fact, Mia, again, I nod to Paris and, and to Europe, which is responsible and should be thanked for that prize money, but also entities like the Guggenheim Fellowship and the United States artists. And we um, feel lucky to have received that kind of support. Italy as well, and the NYU Center for the Ballet and the Arts, which I was talking about with a colleague today. I. Said to myself, "This is the only time in my life, as a choreographer and a space maker, that I'm going to have a down payment," and um, it really stressed me out. Actually, <laughs> as I said, "I said, oh no, <laughs> I have a down payment. What the hell am I going to do?" <laughs> no, just not to be inappropriate, but. That's creatively what my mind said As I was like, what what would one do in this field? So, especially in the United States perhaps and with my origins. So I mustered up a down payment and I coordinated it and I was frugal and I was um, deliberate and I was kind and I was foxy and I worked with um, someone who's who has become a lifelong friend and by now a board member and her name is Peggy Pollenberg and she would have called herself so many years ago a broker (laughs) but she and she is but she's so much more is she worked with me to think about what to do and we thought about it and we designed it and we approached it and we figured it out and we pulled it off. And what happened is I as a choreographer purchased a 196 no, I'm sorry, an 1869 Lutheran church whose congregation had gone bankrupt, um, and whose facility was perfectly intact and whose existence was squarely in the heart um, of Hudson, New York, but on State Street, which is a supremely diverse, highly complex population and zone of Hudson. And being maybe 35 at the time, I said, are we able to do this? And, And Peggy, I don't know if you listen or if we're recording or we edit one day, Peggy, thank you for my whole life because I knew that that capacity at that moment, I knew that I needed to have some kind of a, of an administrative tact, but also like a spiritual strength to say, I need to do this right now, if I'm going to be able to grow old in choreography and sustain it. And I knew that and I I saw that and I probably figured out that having worked with many elders before, that I would need space when I was when I became elderly. And um, somehow, spectacularly, and thanks to support and appreciative for that support, I became an individual choreographer who bought a church. <laughs> so, I, so I own a church in the center of Hudson, and I'm kind of laughing at that because I am in no position to be more um, friendly nor more solvent than a congregation, but somehow I am and we are. And we hold space as well that is also called a church. And we named it Space 428, which Hannah mentioned. And that has gradually over the last six years become the incubator of a festival called the Hudson Eye, which the nonprofit organization actually toils on year-round, and it is curated by Aaron Levi Garvey. Um, Elena Wilson uh, grew out of our workforce development program and was super on the ground um, for its founding year. And one of my dearest colleagues, Ryan Cummings, um, who is one of the strongest artists, but also the most spectacular accountants that I've ever met in my life, Um, he and I balanced a festival in year one, and it seems to be sustaining itself for Um, something ongoing and it's actually one of the most exciting things we're doing right now so that's that's sort of the long short story of the creative process of that church
0: I wanted to ask you about the Hudson Eye Festival actually and specifically something that I read that Aaron wrote um, on the festival website he was you know talking about all the things that have changed in the past year globally and nationally Um, And he said something about wondering under what conditions a Renaissance can be created. And I think he was talking about an artistic one but also a political one and a social one. Um, And because I'm really interested in environmental issues I've often been wondering what it would take for a climate Renaissance to happen because I think that word has so much strength and a voluptuousness in terms of vision and I wanted to ask you about the kind of renaissance in the artistic world or the social world and how they intersect um, that you are yearning for.
2: I love the language you're using Hannah in general and then in that question so let's go with that let's go with that. Hannah and her counterpart on this conversation, Mia might be referring to the curator, Aaron Lee by Garvey's curatorial statement, which just went public around um, an envisioning of the Hudson Eye 2021, which is proceeding safely, largely outdoors, but safely. And that curatorial statement, which is published on the Hudson Eye.com, it might be one of the, the landing, um, Valentines that we wish to, to place into your digital life right now. But yes, the conditions of a society, a COVID society or a post-COVID society, if we could even have the gall to, to say such a thing, because I, I think it will remain with us. Aaron crafted that comment and that, it's a short essay, as a curator, knowing that We need to read such statements about making culture right now with a hope that culture could cure or heal or just make us feel better every day so and in that order cure that's a tall order heal could be done could take various kinds and stripes of vaccines in multiple doses or just make us feel better. So those three tiers of art having that function, I think that's what Aaron is reaching for. And if I could unpack that ever so briefly, cure is a big uh, English word, and it may connote mysticism or, or you know, or, or magic. But Uh, In its Latin origins, or even Spanish origins, cure and curandero, or, you know, to cure, to take care of, to heal, those tie really directly to the root word of curator. And the curator is a caretaker. Epistemologically, just to have a really coherent creative conversation today, is the epistemology of curator curare is to care for. And that is what Aaron Levi Garvey does and many colleagues today in this office do, and I aspire to, is if curare, to care for, to curate. People working in culture have to hold that space is, so Aaron as a curator lives that way. he, that is his lived truth every day when he's being a curator (laughs) in the world or, or being Aaron. So that would that would point us almost towards like a mission, you know, can curating cure. And I don't think we're going to solve that on this Zoom, but I think that his texts often contain that kind of profound reach. Healing, you know, is a little less, there's a little less at stake. <laughs> there's a little less work going on in that verb to heal because you can be sick and you can get better if you're lucky, or you can be afflicted and maybe still heal if modern medicine is properly, you know, is, is doing its proper uh, tricks and, and magic uh, to get the text right. But healing can also, healing is also a sub-genre of dance. So, you can do body work and heal. You can do yoga and heal. You can practice certain kinds of dance, like the curanderos have done and many folkloric kinds of dance, which heal you. So I'm not gonna separate my conversation around choreography and dance from a notion of healing, but I'm also not gonna take on the idea that dance and choreography can heal a pandemic, you know, writ large. So healing, I I put healing into the conversation or into the quote-unquote space. And then the other, uh, the third term as well is just to feel better. So that might tie us back to the emotional logic of, of the creative process, which if we feel better, it might just come from a mood. It might come from some good news we see, you know, we receive. It might come from a friendly email or electronic message as opposed to the latter or the counter and feeling better is very often you know another function of art and I'm not going to say it's greater or lesser but there's less work going on in that verbiage to feel better than healing or curing so when I read from Aaron I I feel better. <laughs> and I think his essays as a curator and their reach are are doing great things. But the the ambition to say that times like these, don't you love it when you say when you read kind of pat phrases is like I hope this email finds you well or like in times like these, <laughs> you know, like what the, what does that even mean? but in time but I'll use it in times like these could we be seeing the backdrop for artists to achieve what other eras did like it was that bad and it was that tough and it was that intense and the artists were summoned to do any number of functions of art. And their creative process birthed and rebirthed and rebirthed a kind of healing of the society, which for me, rebirth and renaissance share an epistemology. So we're not going to be reborn in any sense of that verb, uh, from my point of view, but we could imagine that the function of art right now takes its role again to to be become involved in a rebirth, and it's going to be different. <laughs> and I, I kind of then I, I sort of that's that that's responding to Hannah and thanking Aaron and commenting on that essay of the Hudson Eye, it's going to be, the rebirth is going to show us that it's different. And it's going to be reborn differently right now.
1: I think that it's what you're doing is so essential. And I want to post the the dates for the Hudson Eye and just following on that about the capacity of the arts to heal maybe to take care if not to cure. Uh, yes, we are going through, and I, I couldn't help but reflecting on it right now as we see what continues to take place in Gaza and knowing your own origins and knowing how with your dance company, you, you have traveled around the world and bridged communities. And that seems like a something that doesn't seem to be cured and definitely is in need of healing. I just wonder what your emotional, um, if not in your dance, artistic response, but what your response is to that and and how do you feel?
2: Thank you, Mia. Thank you. Please join me in a four-count breath. (laughs) Okay? And I laugh again. This is that JB laugh. So let's all have a four-count breath, right? We just are in a pandemic or getting into one or getting out of one or maybe this exists for all time. Let's sort of do four counts in. and four counts out and let's just let's just be where we're at and where I'm at today is humorous I'm just in a humorous mood I'm, I feel great I feel thankful to Mia thankful to Hannah thankful to the creative process and with this humor and with that breath and with that oxygen and being able to breathe and say thanks I'm going to crack a joke, (laughs) which is, which is oil. My joke is oil. Oil makes the gears turn. I used oil this morning to make a door less squeaky. I use oil as a kind of, you know, I, 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 I hydrate, you know, I, I try to have better and better skin, you know, everybody uses oil in their own way. Hudson was a whaling town. You know, they harvested whales for, you know, they, they farmed whales, whale oil. Oil in the Middle East, don't think that America or Russia or France or anywhere that you're hearing this from, don't think that you're separate from the oil. The oil is in your joints. The jo- You know, the oil is in your kneecap. The oil is in... You know, the oil is in everything. It's in food, but petrol, as we say, the oil in that region could power the planet or make things go wrong or swing the market or cause unending conflict. And the joke that I'm cracking with this creativity and humor is that the petrol and the oil of the region And the oil of that fire and the oil of that conflict is so ancient that it would have to become epistemological. Could the oil become epistemology? I actually think it is, (laughs) But, but it's, could the oil of that region become epistemology? is the is for me the creative question to work on. You know, and could I say I'm Arab? Sure. Could I say I have a Semitic name? Sure. Could I say I'm this or that religion or yes or no or not or all of the above or none of the above? Sure. You know, could I say that I'm a Middle Eastern choreographer? I always do. It's on my website. You know, could I say we tour dance there? We love it. We love it. We love to go to Israel. We love to go to Gaza, we love it. So whatever the flare-up is, it's not yesterday's headline. That oil is so ancient, and those conflicts are so ancient that you would have to kind of drill into the planet to get to that epistemology, is that the oil is so, the oil of that fire is so ancient and so deep that you probably can't separate it from language or the planet.
1: That makes, I love, you say it, of course, you turn it into art in a way, um, it, but it also sounds insolvable when you say it. It's so deep in our. Um, I want to see beyond. I'm wondering though, when you travel with your, when you're performing and you say in different regions and there's conflict everywhere, but dance means something to, to different cultures that respond more intuitively or more deeply or have an intellectual response to dance. Just tell us a little bit about your experience. And even, and I understand that sometimes your uh, choreographies uh, evolve and they're a collaborative process maybe with shared authorship or just how how does that work? How how do you learn in the process of making and touring?
2: Thanks for that, Mia. I, what I wanna zero in on in Mia's question is that there's conflict everywhere. You know, there's conflict in Asia, there's conflict in Africa, in the Caribbean, there's conflict in Russia. We we have to work with that. And so I would then on the creativity front or the somehow we've gotten very et- et- etymological <laughs> on the call is is very that's probably from me. Etymology, so crisis. I would like to respond to Mia with the word crisis so that it's not just about the Middle East or its actors. You know, America is an actor, Russia is an actor. Everybody's an actor to use that language really deliberately but the etymology of crisis is uh, very productive and constructive. I would like to say because crisis in the Greco Roman etymology, the crisis, crisis is what happens when there's a germ in the body. So, the body, let's say there's a germ, which on planet Earth, we're going to have germs, we're going to have viruses, we're going to have bacteria. So, the germ enters the body, the human body. And when that happens, crisis happens. And the body heats up in order to create heat, to flush out the germ. And then what happens is fever often. So this heat from the crisis creates fever. And fever and the breaking of fever tends to flush out the germ. So you know, germ and virology, in case that's helpful for, quote, unquote, these times, and crises, and fever, and the heating up, and expelling the germ, and healing the condition. Let's not say curing it, because it comes back. But let's say healing the germ through crisis is the etymology. And crisis gave gave birth and rebirth to criticism. And so criticism and crisis, we think in America like, oh, like I'm being criticized, like that that's bad. But criticism and in Paris, where you're coming in from today, Mie, you know, de la critique, criticism is health in terms of its etymology, is that. Criticism and crisis have the same root word. And applying heat to the subject or applying heat to the body, that crisis, that criticism heals. It has a a function in health. I I bring that up because crisis, we say crisis, we say critique like these are bad things, quote unquote. And America is very good at this. But let's, let's say that crisis and criticism and heat are a part of healing and to sort of shift the use of the English language on that front. And that's a, a, it's a really huge wager that I'm putting into this creative process today. But crisis and criticism are not bad things. They actually in their root word in English and, and in Greco-Roman languages, they apply heat and maybe fever breaks, and then maybe health uh, is restored. So I anchor us in that because there's crisis everywhere, right? There's crisis in Hong Kong. There's crisis in Latin America. There's crisis in America. There's crisis in Europe. And that we, we we could probably feel better if we to receive the language that way.
0: Thank you all for tuning in to this conversation. I'm Hannah Story Brown, a New York based writer and associate producer and interviewer for the Creative Process podcast. I'm happy to share this meandering creative conversation with all of you. I thought I would use this interlude as a chance to reflect on some of what I've learned from dance. My sister is a dancer, and I'm a dramaturg who's written scripts for dance theatre pieces, so I've had the opportunity to collaborate with a number of dancers, but I've always appreciated the art form from the outside. I've found that the language of dance can be one of the most difficult to translate into words, which strikes me as a useful challenge. Jonah brings up a number of etymologies in the course of our conversation. That of community, curation, crisis, criticism, in order to get at these words' buried meanings and origins. Etymology has the appeal of a treasure hunt, where you're discovering something that you're saying, even when you don't know that you're saying it. Words only gain their meaning in relation to each other, and they carry all this hidden baggage, like how memories reside in the body. Dance, as an embodied language, recognizes that the body carries and can express all sorts of latent meanings, just as words do. I wonder whether you're all familiar with contact improv. It's just what it sounds like, dancers coming into contact with each other's bodies and moving in spontaneous reaction to each other. I'm fascinated by the honesty and the vulnerability of this kind of dancing. Their movement is changed by every encounter they have. They're sharing their weight, which has all sorts of metaphoric resonances, and their interdependence is completely unplanned. That's a lot like life. We're always moving and shifting in relation to one another in unexpected ways. We can't be untouched by what happens around us. We rely on each other inevitably. Contact improv embodies the creative potential of those everyday, spontaneous interactions. And I wonder what it would look like if people extended that kind of heightened awareness of each other as we move through space into everyday life. We would know our own weight better and the ways in which other people are heavy and how they might need to be carried or let go of or given room really i think that contact improv is a practice of sharing thank you for listening now back to the interview i wanted to ask you because we're still on the topic of the sort of global reach and impact and processing of dance and its many etymological roots and connections. I was remembering that uh, right before the pandemic began, you had your show about an arabesque. And thinking about etymology, I was remembering that you were playing on arabesque. And I know that that's a very interdisciplinary gallery show that you put on right before the world had this great crisis. So I was curious if there's, if you have some connections there reflecting on that show. and. And it's sort of fate as it met the pandemic and this great period of change.
2: Actually, for those of you maybe watching a future video edit about an arabesque is installed behind us for a couple of the works. And huge shout out to Ryan, a colleague of mine who understands its value. Like, let's say, quote unquote, on like a balance sheet, not to be too Western about it, but because it's a very non-Western work. But for those of you watching a future video edit, you can look at some of the prints that Hannah just referred to. And you can look at a a creative, (laughs) maybe messy storyboard underneath it, which is for a future museum show. And and in between them is a calendar, right? So that's usually kind of important. Um, But Hannah, I appreciate your question. And it hits a kind of a, a home or a a tome, T-O-M-E with me, which is the volumes, the big books of arabesque or or sort of the volumes of them kind of choreograph themselves through and throughout art history. So it's hard to go through the arts without them or without um, finding arabesque. It's also hard to go through dance uh, certainly Western dance, but probably in all dance, you might extend your leg to the back at some point. or you might just do that as a moving person. So in in you know art history, arabesque, you know, is a movement of its own. and this office participated in um, a forthcoming volume, which is edited by Anne Leonard who's a curator, the Menton Curator of Prints at the Clark uh, Art Museum, and a great curator like Aaron. And so she regarded the show that Hannah just referred to and the printmaking, although the other kind of post-medium works around it, and she thought that there should be some writing about arabesque. And the title of the show at Signs and Symbols Gallery was about an arabesque. And the gallery was founded by Mitra Korache, who is American and Canadian and Iranian and Zoroastrian. And so I thought, like, I thought as an artist, right? Because as artists, we need to be very um, deliberate about the few creative moves that we get, right? So I thought it would be creative of me to title the show that way. And the work that ensued And the prints uh, that that might be visible here, they elaborate on ideas about arabesque uh, throughout the ages and in many zones. So some of them that we're seeing hail from Saudi or Crete or Tunisia where my father was born or Carthage or even the Greco-Roman, Troy, you know, and some of the Greco-Roman ways that the Mediterranean basin is tied together. The Mediterranean. Uh, if you just look at the the body of water, the Mediterranean, right, which we say, and it, it sort of sounds like a beach, when you you know when you use the language that way, it's like oh I would like to be there, versus if you're like Beirut, you know, or Tunisia, and people are like oh, you know, <laughs> so but the Mediterranean, or if you're like oh Greece and Sicily, like it sounds different. Or what's the one we love? Gibraltar, Spain. So the Mediterranean's pretty big. And Europe kind of can't separate itself from the Mediterranean, nor from the Middle East. North Africa can't separate itself from that body of water, nor the Middle East. And so the language is going to change in our lifetimes towards Mena, which means the Middle East and North Africa. Menasa, the Middle East, North Africa and South Asia. And hang with me. Mesa, the Middle East and no, Middle East, South Asian and Arab. So it's going to play out the language in English during our lifetimes. And so you can't, you can't say, you know, I don't know what you can say or can't say, I'm not even gonna go out on that limb, but the language is gonna change. And if you just go with that body of water, which is the subject of some of these prints. They're all tattooed, so they all have an arabesque done by hand on them. So the the notion of arabesque being a kind of proliferating, decoric, you know, uh, graphic art form is certainly valid. But who would I be if I didn't say, it's also a pretty important part of ballet. So arabesque and dance, is you know you can't get away from it arabesque in the arts you can't get away from it and i was talking with one colleague today about music and the russian canon so arabesque in music relates very quickly to dance and to scenery for sure so it's interrelated and what i was trying to do in that exhibition that that hannah brought up was to maybe like proliferate arabesque in the zones that we might call Arab which I get called Arab I get called everything <laughs> and I'm sort of all of the above and none of the above but that Arabesque or like Arab Arabesque would sort of find its geography and then just depart from it and depart from the zone and from the medium and become something in between so that was the that's where it went. And then, you know, sort of you you get into some of like your hardcore museum types who really picked up on that. But I also didn't want it to be in any grand form. I think that it, it really belonged in its place in that gallery and it's having a life. And the people that interact with that work are between Scholastic and performing artists and collectors and it's really that's that's how I would want the work to live is somewhere in between so I, I hope that answers the question and then there were videos video art which some of some of these as well so performing artists were then recorded as well
1: it's so interesting as you've spoken then that water that that water the um that culture that flows, the history that flows through your work and addressing the visual, which a bit uh, unusual for for many choreographers that you get your inspiration. I believe you collaborate with many mediums, but you have a strong inspiration from the visual world that might be unusual for some choreographers. Uh, I want to, I would like to go into that a little bit more. And then also uh, we haven't even spoken about your many wonderful collaborators from different mediums, uh, whether they're uh, musicians, um, you know, or John Cage or Pharrell Williams or fashion design, Azadina Lea or uh, Robert Wilson. Just tell us what you get from both the visual world and then some of these other collaborations or inspirations from um, other parallel um, art forms.
2: Mia, can I crack another joke? And then, the joke
1: because
2: that was a big question <laughs> can I I want to crack a joke and then I want to answer your question in like a really direct way would that be cool with you okay I hope that would be creative okay since we're recording here's here's what it is 1979 it's 1979 what happened probably a lot a, a lot happened who am I to say creatively or politically or geopolitically who knows but to be, to you know, to crack this joke, here's here's another response to a question that has not been yet fully answered, and I would like to cover it, and it's also hanging on the wall. Saudi Arabia uh, shifted into a Wahhabi society. There was a United States-backed coup which toppled a very left-wing Shah in Iran, who had been partying with Robert Wilson, who you mentioned, and Andy Warhol and Merce Cunningham, who all toured there and had a great time. Russia invaded Afghanistan. So Saudi Arabia, Iran, and Afghanistan all went through that in 1979. And I've learned that America is probably not going to break it down in as few words as I just used that's the joke so <laughs> that's that's the joke and it took a short lifetime to figure out and I dare anyone to use less words but then creatively why do I tour there why do I go there because it's ancient and it's beautiful and I feel great there and I'm I am at my most creative and I learn in the most breathtaking and challenging ways when I open myself to that possibility even as a gay person going there and just imagine what I have to go through and it's fun. <laughs> it's, it's really fun and it's full of good energy and the the wellspring that it brings into my art and my creative process is just unending, and it's very humbling. So I think about that, and so that's so that's sort of the joke. But then, collaborators of mine, like or past collaborators of mine, or let's get into the collaboration stuff. So we all love each other, and we all stayed friends. So that's that's the best sign of a creative process. So. Merce Cunningham and I saying how much we love each other professionally, you know, during his last days, or Robert Wilson and I still loving each other and still being willing to do a really big gig together. That's a good sign. Uh, You mentioned Pharrell Williams, who I love, and I just gave a little heart on Instagram uh, to just something that he brilliantly posted in his way, and you know, it's him because of how he dropped it, sort of. The panache of that. Is that show still touring? And I would thank Daniel Arsham and Galerie Perrotin for that as well. And um Azrin Laya you mentioned as well, Mia, and uh the the perhaps the most famous Tunisian couturier who you know rest in peace uh is no longer with us, but his costumes for the ballet, Sheherazade, uh, or in the in the Arabic or the Farsi word shahrazad, which means the woman of the city. But not the woman of the city and not the city girl. It would be, you know, shahrazad would be sex in the city. Sarah Jessica Parker. It would be a TV show, shahrazad. That's shahrazad translates to sex in the city. In my, <laughs> in my my creative translation of it because it's not the fortune teller and all that stuff so as Alaya and i collaborated on that and he said thank goodness someone finally asked me to do Sheherazade, in in the french uh alliter- alliteration of it which is very beautiful but shahrazad and the legends and the folklore and Sheherazade led to this incredibly rich collaboration which you know, is related to some of the questions you've asked and collaboration should sort of be a pleasure or sort of somewhere between hard work and pleasure, I guess. And that's what, that's what they have always been for me. And that, that may be why there's so many of them, you know, and and you, you would like to see a very calm office today with happy people and clean airflow, but collaborations can be tough, but they, they also, I think the reason why there have been so many of them is because they're a joy, creatively.
1: Well, I think that you must be a joy to work with the fact that you have attracted so many from a variety of backgrounds. And I think that also this ability of yours, which I hadn't realized fully uh you know, just your linguistic ability. One doesn't, well, I've certainly all the dancers that I've had the opportunity to speak with and and choreographers have been very articulate, but you have taken it to another level of epistemology. And it really helps us who perhaps don't live every day in the world of dance understand. And one thing, and you're just breaking it down like almost like a periodic table. And I can imagine, you're analysing the essences or you're analysing the spirit that goes into dance. Uh, It helps us understand one thing that was. you were speaking, uh, this is earlier in the conversation and you were talking about thinking, I I can't remember what it is, it just reminded me that we all perceive the world in different ways Mm. and some people not even visually like musicians, they can almost be wandering around in a kind of a kind of blind like sonar or something and it made me feel like there are some people who they, this that expression they think therefore that they are and I felt like a dancer maybe is you move or you have to feel the spirit of something therefore you are. Uh, I don't know where you rest most often because it seems like you can travel and you're a conversant in these different worlds.
2: I like how that question bridges us to the creative process and its iterations in the series. I love that. Thank you. Like, uh, I think therefore I am, and, like a, and Rodin has, has done phenomenal statements, and there are many. I think of Malcolm Gladwell, who just moved to Hudson. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> so, or You're like, going to
1: be collaborating soon. I have a prediction.
2: <laughs> OK. Hi, Malcolm. Got to get back to Aaron. <laughs> so, okay, or this uh, raison d'être, raison d'être, or a tipping point where I think therefore I am, and I have if I have X number of thoughts, I become a master, or X number of dégagés will master a certain kind of dance. Is thank you for that. We we probably all cope with that in our various creative endeavors because this series is so multidisciplinary. So writing, poetry, uh, theater, filmmaking, you know, think think of the violinist or the oboist who the amount of time and skill building and practice and toil that would go into the medium. That brings me back to Mia, like, are there muses? And I I want to answer you, but I'm going to like kind of kick it back to you and Hannah and and your series. Are there muses before I answer?
1: Oh, you want us?
2: Do you believe in muses?
1: Well, I don't know know if it's very interesting because I think I believe very much in spontaneity. In fact, I'm a co-editor of this. uh, Now it's a volume. It's published by Rutledge. And so we're talking about that or I am. And uh, I feel very lucky. I... If I may even say, I've had opportunities to speak to a number of, we'll say, geniuses or type, and often it's a mystery. I think what they say to me is, it's a mystery. You don't know where the ideas come from. So maybe it's a, a muse who is sitting on your shoulder. Whatever it is, you can think about it afterwards, but you just have to go with it, mm-hmm. and and that's that's what I feel, um, and. I think in relation to dance, uh, something I I practice in an amateur way every day, but because I'm not good, I'm always spontaneous. And so, as I, but I think that something about being open and being childlike, this is what I've learned from some of these conversations, and you'll have a more direct engagement to it, is that when we forget ourselves, and if we've been... In the, pra- in the habit, as you say, with the Malcolm God, of forgetting right. ourselves for many hours. So we get better at being spontaneous. Then we approach what it's like to be a child, that play. And I'm, I'm talking too much here, but also then we approach that sense of play and mastery that in I see in dancers and I see in the murmurations of starlings, right. for instance. Are they thinking about, they, if they stop to think, it would, they would fall out of the sky, I really think, oh, you know?
2: What a good one you gave us. That's a beautiful remark. And I, to make a bridge today, right, another another bridge, I had hoped, and maybe we, and we have a few more minutes, I had hoped towards conversation together. I
0: was actually hoping to, to make a little comment about the, I think, therefore I am idea, because The sort of Cartesian idea that we exist only within ourselves um, is something that I love to push back upon only because I do think that we find so much of ourselves alone and in that headspace and yet our head isn't really ever separate from the world around us so I think it's the idea of muses it's almost like every exchange or engagement with another is like where we find ourselves as well as find a point of contact with the world. So I I would say that I definitely believe in muses, but I think that everything, whether we want it or not, becomes a muse and that it sparks and changes us and that we're just such receptive creatures. And so I think that dance, I would actually say that contact improv is one of the clearest evocations of that idea that anything can be a spark that like shifts us as people.
2: I love the conversation. And I wanted to not, not to be provocative, but I wanted to kick it to Mia and to Hannah in this conversation by saying, do muses exist? And I love where the conversation has brought us and not, I don't want to be like a, you know, (laughs) want to be a broken record, but the epistemology, I guess because I grew up with so many languages swirling, it made, and I had to, I said, boy, I have to figure this out. I think, constantly through the languages. And so my use of words, I'm not short with words, but I, my use of words, is pretty choreographed. So conversation, the etymology is turning together. Verse, verses, towards in a way. So conversation is we are with each other and we are turning together. That's which is what a conversation is. And Hannah, I love your work. You know, I'm I'm not on some pedestal. I just I love what you do. And Mia, I'm just like your series is breathtaking, as is your thought making.
1: Oh, thank you. Well, you're very kind. So, uh, no, you've given us much to think about, and we really are looking forward to the Hudson Eye and its outdoor iteration and its continuation through your many um, projects. Your traveling uh performances exhibitions um, there are many there there are many uh, ways that people can um, experience your work even in um, this this period of crisis or Corona uh, and really it's given us so, so much. I think that you spoke about, there about the the healing uh, power of dance. And for us in this period, in, we're all reflecting on distances. I can't, you know, as you say, you know, I'm in Paris. We never thought that it would be possible. We never thought we would even give up, you know, kissing each other on the cheek. This is impossible. Now we have to live in this new re- reality where um, intimacy is we miss it so sorely so what you as a choreographer as an artist generally and as a dancer can give us even through watching your choreographed intimacies, it gives us so much
2: I, I think I owe you a much more direct response Mia but I wanted to say with Hannah is like yes your work does that and you could go with that and and you could especially around Descartes, and, you know, that, that the, that there would be a mind-body division, even, right? And, and, and how would we divide the mind from the body, actually, right? So, and how to critique the great thinkers who have upheld our, you know, the systems that we're residing upon, as we have conversations like this. So, critique, and kind of, um, exfoliating thought <laughs> you know to use a body word or a body skin word is we should constantly be sort of exfoliating on the traditions if you will which is what a tree would do but Mia i think i, I think I didn't answer you something is you you mentioned like oh i want it was muses so you know muses and you, you used brilliant language mia so are the muses mystical, you know, or you said, is it sort of mystic- mysticism? So are the muses gods? Are the muses mystic? Like are the muses in our mind? Are they Greek? You know, <laughs> are they, are they archetypal? Or are they Balanchine's wives, you know, or, or, or not to be derogatory or Lar Lubavitch's husbands or whatever, but like not to be provocative, but, who are the muses? Are there muses? I would say, yes. And they have been variously to sort of, not to scroll through the whole canon, but they have been cast as gods and goddesses, you know, as archetypes, as actual, you know, art forms themselves music and dance and terpsichore and calliope and poetry and the lyric arts as people we deify the great masters uh, to use kind of hannah and mia's references too, and that's productive and then one artist i don't want to be in a i would never be inappropriate and i never have and i never will be but one artist um you know and, and and this is not this is not my language but one artist or collaborator mia since you, we touched on collaborators said to me um you know perfectly uh enjoying actually it was it, it was a, a woman from venezuela she said to me a little happy one day let maybe a little after you know a, a happy hour said never screw the muse and I said, <laughs> I said, well, you don't have to worry about that with me. I'm like trying to create a foundation and have clean accounting and be, you know, spend a life at this. I'm not, I'm not going to mess up. I'm not going to do anything inappropriate. And and she said, no, throughout the eras, all chaos breaks loose. <laughs> if you, and I never, like never crossed that barrier. And I was like, well, well, don't worry about me. And they were like, no, I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about making art. So in the history of art, the muse and the artist can't have each other. They can't have each other. They have to motivate each other perpetually, productively, creatively.
1: I think that's the ideal. I think you have to tell that to Picasso though. But, <laughs> but um, I'm sorry, I'm just making a joke there. But I think that it's true because if they can never have, then the imagination must fill the space that is not filled by the body. I'm talking about like real, like a, an embodied muse when it's a person. Yeah. But of course that, that chasing after, the longing for that that doesn't exist then we have to recreate in our mind uh the intangible the transient i mean and that's the thing the ephemeral with the dance to
2: to have you know to, to have to hold to attain you know to yes it's all in the language it's all in the language but the artist and the muse need to keep uh kind of orbiting each other
1: Is that your next choreography? Because I already see a dance.
2: Could be, could be. (laughs)
1: Well, I want to thank you. I guess in closing, we do think about the future and you, you really touched on it, that we're longing for this future where we can all commune and we have this sense of community, not virtually, but in person. So I guess as you think about the future, uh, you think about the environment, these issues of our time, the things that we're we're all going through uh, collectively uh, and what the arts have given you, um, the importance in in your life. um, What would you like young people to know, preserve and remember?
2: That's a tall one a tall one. It's going to change in our lifetimes.
1: Yeah, and I think um, it is, and that can be that can be read both ways. But we have to be prepared for it, and we have to meet it with all the talents that we have. And, and your art helps us do that.
2: Yeah, hard, hard question. I, I, I tried to really tried with all of me to distill that one down <laughs> but, but I, I think it's also true is that it's going to change in our lifetimes
1: and no it's, it's true um and i i think it it is i think this decade it will this is going to be a decade of change it's already a decade of change i appreciate you how you take the the question seriously and then the immeasurable wonderful good work you do both in your own dance projects and then incubating and supporting uh, other artists as well, because as you say, n- they need those spaces in order to thrive. And if they don't, it's, it's a real creative process too. As you say, I've been, we've been calling them the invisible arts, you know, the producers, yes. the, the people who provide those spaces.
2: Beautiful. That's, a, I, I actually, yeah. I just grew from hearing how you and probably you and Hannah are thinking about that. That's a, that's a takeaway. That's a big takeaway.
0: Oh.
1: Well, thank you. Well, thank you for taking the time. And, uh, and thank you, Hannah, for, for bringing in, uh, us together. Uh, so uh, thank you, Jonah Beaucaire, for inviting us into your imaginative world and your insights into dance and cross collaborations and for your important contributions to choreography. Thank you.
0: Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk and Hannah Story Brown with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate Interviews Producer and Digital Media Coordinator on this podcast was Hannah Story Brown. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio. We hope you've enjoyed listening to this podcast. If you would like to get involved with our creative community, exhibitions, podcasts, or to submit your creative works for review, just drop us a line at team at creativeprocess.info. Thank you for listening.